out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Chris Lowe, who has been a drummer in various anarcho-punk bands and has been on the music scene, quite ravey music scene, for sort of part of uh, the late 80s and 90s and has recently brought out a compilation which is titled Cease and Resist, which features such people as Zounds, Honeybane, Crass, Annie Anxiety, uh, The Cravats, Poison Girl, Jumblewomba, The X, and many more. Plus, and this is also very exciting, he's brought out a book which is titled Best Before 1984, which is a selection of uh, fanzines and flyers as the title says, before 1984, which is also available. I will give you the links in the notes below. But uh, this is the interview with Chris, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject. It's so exciting. Of the early formative years, Chris, tell us more, tell us now. Well, I mean, the thing to remember is basically I was born in 1969. Mm. So in, in you know, when punk came along, um, I was that was basically just just literally when I was becoming aware of music. Yes. Um, I mean, before that, I remember, you know, there was a few things I liked, you know, kind of dead-end kids and, uh, you know, Smokey and, you know, some of these, as you say, kind of like probably the cheesier end of sort of glam things, the things you'd probably get on, like, kids' TV shows and stuff like that. But um, <clears throat> literally as soon as I became aware of music, um, punk came along. I mean, I think I actually became aware of punk and kind of identified with punk before I'd even heard a single punk song. I think, you know, in real terms, first punk records I probably ever heard were things like Plastic Bertrand and, you know, probably some not exactly the most sort of credible releases no, of the time. But, but very but very catchy. Yeah, yeah indeed. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant song, brilliant song. Yes, absolutely. Well, I grew up, I, I was a, just a wee bit older than you not by a lot but you know obviously hearing the Bay City Rollers you know doing mm. their kind of anthemic shout out was was probably the inspiration for the Ramones really wasn't it yes so, indeed um, indeed and obviously Bay City Rollers were massive in Scotland yes you know so I remember <laughs> so I mean there's you know no way you could escape them in the 70s no this is true and and to be honest you know at that age when I you know was I don't know eight or nine they were on top of the pops all the time mm. everywhere so um you couldn't help but Ding Shang Alang. So um there you go. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so then as as we as we truck through into the, the mid-80s, this is the golden era of indie pop, but you would have been like 16 in 85. I'm doing my math yeah. here. So then what happens then with your kind of next musical world or project? Well, I mean, it's kind of like even even when I was into even when I was into um punk, you know, like in the early late 70s to early 80s. And in particular, the anarcho-punk period, which is, say, like 1980 to 1984. I mean, even through that period, I was still, you know, kind of into, you know, one thing I got really into was like Electro, when that first came out with the Street Sounds Electro albums. Mm-hmm. So by the by the mid, by the mid 80s, by 85, I'd say, I was, you know, I really, I pretty much lost most interest in punk. Um, there wasn't really that much I found kind of particularly engaging and inspiring within punk. And I was just banging to like New York Electro and, you know, some of the earliest um, kind of some of the earliest proto-techno records that were basically starting to filter over from Detroit and um, obviously Europe as well. 
you know, DAF, Cabernet. Wasn't the stuff like DAF, Cabernet, Voltaire, certain ratio, um, liquid, liquid, um, you know, stuff like that. Stuff like that. Kind of like, uh, you know, sort of electro funk type stuff. Yes, no, that, well, that, I, that, I, that's I, what I was into, and, and all my mates at school were into that as well. You know. Yes, well, it, it was kind of eighty-three onwards. I, I sort of discovered the John Peel show before then. Yes, I, yes. I, it was it was the charts, and then I had an older brother who was seven years older who introduced me to the world of prog rock. Well, right. I didn't. He didn't introduce me. I used to sneak into his room and listen to his records and think, "Wow, yeah. these are amazing." So I have a bizarre uh, knowledge of kind of Yes and Genesis yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and the solo work of Rick Wakeman. And then you know you get to an age you think I'm bored of this, just literally bored of hearing these songs. I mean, they're fine. I, I grew up with them. But then, you know, like John Peel, and it was like, this is weird. And then the Street Sounds compilations, you know, were really big in my life. I used to get every one. And I even went to Wembley to the UK Fresh. Oh, my God. <laughs> in, in 85. It was either 85 or 86, because it was Morgan Kahn who did that yes, record yes, label. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, incredible, incredible. It was, it was, and John Peel used to play these very early. Yes, know, he did, indeed. I know, I remember hearing um, Fresh Mess, which I think was... Uh, maybe on Street Sounds 4. It was one with Egyptian Lover on Street Sounds. I remember John Peel playing Fresh Mess and just thinking that was just like one of the most, just the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. And um, and literally just, I mean, you couldn't get a record like that. You can get a 12-inch like that in Stirling or in Glasgow or Edinburgh at the time. I remember, I think I sent off to it some, um, you know, company down in London that was advertising in, I don't know what it would even be. It probably wouldn't have been Sounds on NME then either. It would have been like maybe one of the kind of A4 magazine which maybe covered maybe blues and soul something like that yes yes it was they were quite hard to get hold of but i i remember he played things like tila rock but then he played there was an artist called roxay chante and yeah, real yeah. roxanne yeah. and i was absolutely obsessed with well roxay chante especially i thought she was just amazing so, yeah uh, no fantastic stuff and the other thing about those albums which i remember is we used to always play them in the school bus so basically on the bus it was a real you know we and, you know, so say one of your mates would buy, like, you know, Street Sounds 2, someone else would buy Street Sounds 4 or something like that. So you'd swap them and you'd record them. So you'd end up with a C90, which was just all, you know, like one electro album on one side, one electro album on the other side. And that's what essentially school soundtracked the school bus yes. you know, for those for those years. And we realised that John Peel was so good because he'd play the best record or the best track from an album and you thought well that's brilliant and then you went and bought that person's album and it was dreadful (laughs) (laughs) i know i know incredible yeah the way he'd obviously just have that kind of ear to filter through and and hear something yeah Apart from Public Enemy, and that was a bit different, but you know, yeah, indeed. That, well, that that was that was something else. So there yeah. you go. So yes, yeah, so the yes, yeah, and hip hop the... as well. I mean, you know, in the early eighties, I got. I mean, even at the same time, I remember. You know, I mean, when did uh, I mean the Message? When was that? Nineteen eighty-two. I mean, I, you know, I'd have been buying things like the Message and early Sugar Hill Gang records and stuff, and Tommy Boy and um, Sleeping Bag and stuff. I'd have been buying those records at the same time I was buying, you know, Crass records and. Yeah, big Indians and all that sort of thing. Because I was very curious. Because when Public, um, that Petrol Emotion brought out Big Decision, they had that rap from yeah. Brother D in the Collective Effort, and I had to track that record down with such excitement. You know, it took me ages, but it was worth yeah. it. You know, and uh, <laughs> and when I interviewed Steve Lamac, uh, Steve Mack, I said, you know, what about that? And he, you know, obviously he'd heard that story below us before, but you know, I was kind of in, I was fascinated with that crossover, and then anything on. Yeah, Chicago house music, and then you know, was it FFRR records or something? Yeah, like that? yeah, yeah. The London that because that licensed a lot of the Chicago Lil Louie and um, Frankie Knuckles, and yeah, a lot of the kind of seminal Chicago tracks. 
Yes, um, I do remember. I remember John Peel playing "Love Can't Turn Around" and just playing. Yeah, it. well, I remember. I remember seeing that on Soul Train, and literally, you know, I was blown away by that. You know, infinitely more than I remember even being blown away when I saw like you know Sex Pistols on TV or anything like that. That was just like, wow, whoa, yes, you know? absolutely incredible. So did you, at this stage, were you getting into bands, be, you know, wanting to be part of bands at, at this point, or were you still a fan? Um, well, me and my mates, I mean, you know, yeah, we we tried to, we formed like, is that my flatmate? My flatmate's probably going to come in and stop us at some point. Um, yeah, I mean, my mates who I was into, bang into like the uh, electro and kind of hip hop and stuff like that, and kind of, you know, funk, soul stuff. At that period, we did form a couple of bands at school. We had a band called um, Painted Faith, who I've got recordings of, uh, a band Avant Garde. Um, pretty shocking names, actually. But uh, yeah, so we were we were trying to sort of get get stuff together. And you know, like two or three years ago, two or three years prior to that, these would have been the same people I was playing. You know, like tube plugs of pink Indians, tube disasters with, or things like that. So it was quite. Quite yes, change. that was kind of yes, I know. And dear old Alan now lives down in I in Suffolk from oh. Flux. Yes, I did oh, an yeah, interview right. with him recently. That was quite good and quite close to the singer of Terminal Cheesecake. I thought that was quite amusing. All right, <laughs> I was actually I actually toured with some band and their drummer had been in Terminal Cheesecake. I was later very impressed to find out. Yes, it was yeah, quite amazing, amazing stuff. Yes. So did you? I mean. Just so, what's your kind of then period or next part of your career in the nineties? Well, basically, in the, in the late eighties, nineteen eighty nine, I started DJing. So I started DJing at, um, well, basically, I mean, then it was kind of like you know, it was you know inspired by kind of acid house and everything. But at that time, as well as you know, Chicago acid tracks and uh, stuff from Detroit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We were also playing things like a lot of Tackhead, a lot of on you sounds. Um, things like SPK, um, a lot of the kind of more dance-friendly electro stuff, um, electronic stuff, uh, e you know, EBM, electronic body music, new beat, Belgian new beat. So there was a lot of sort of European stuff that we'd be mixing up with the um, Black American house and techno stuff that was that was coming over as well. So quite a kind of eclectic sound, and yes. of course, and of course, you know, a fair bit of kind of UK stuff because there was a lot of UK rave stuff and fairly decent techno coming coming out of Britain at that time as well. So basically I started first club 19 January 1989. I've actually you can probably see the posters behind me actually. Yeah. Um started doing a club called Sex Beat. Then uh did a and then basically we formed was the there was my club I was doing a club called Sex Beat, pretty much one of the only other clubs in Edinburgh at the time that was playing similar music was a club called Dream Slam, which was a guy called Kenny Fantasia who was playing for the fall at this time. And he ran this club with the guys um, from Glasgow, Stuart Nord, who um, went on to obviously great success running their club Slam um, and recording under that name as well, obviously. And so we kind of joined forces for a night called Excess, uh, which was a venue, Wilkie House. The first night was unfortunately kind of smashed up because there was like a big football casual thing in Edinburgh and there was a big fight that night. So the, the, gig, the thing got smashed up. And after that, we then launched um, the club, which I did for the longest time, probably about eight years on and off, which was Soma, which uh, must have must have existed in pretty much every decent venue in Edinburgh. Yes. And um, well, that was myself, Ke Kenny. Kenny was kind of like basically just ran it. He ran the financial side, 
and the DJs were myself, Grant Grant Whiteside, who was a good mate of mine. I think he was my flatmate at the time. Uh, another flatmate of mine, Dill, um, and a guy, Luke Leslie, um, who kind of disappeared for a while. But um, yeah, so we were the we were the the sort of resident DJs at Soma from like 1990 to well, I mean, it, it pretty much finished to all intents in 1994. Right. But then it was uh, it was brought back for a wee while shortly afterwards and continued in one form or another with different DJs, not original DJs, until about 1998, which is when I moved down to London. Yes. So did you get into the, the free festival rave scene? and festival? No, not at all. You see, that never existed in Scotland. There's there's never really been free festival kind of things in Scotland. The one thing like that I did go to was just really, really horrible. I remember it just being like absolutely hideous and incredibly depressing, and I just never went to anything like that again. I mean, even in 10 years of like running, you know, techno clubs, I only maybe went to like two raves in my entire life. I just just not really my thing. There was a there was a the kind of music and the and the vibe just weren't really my thing. Yes, no, and you know. I mean, which 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 is interesting because there's the whole historicization of, you know, like the rave scene, and everybody portrays it as like you know everybody was going to like massive free raves, you know, every weekend. Which a in Scotland that didn't happen because Scotland's never had any squatting laws, so thus people couldn't occupy places. You know, if you were to set up a sound system. Cops could just like come down immediately, confiscate the sound system, and nick anybody they wanted, you yeah. know, for um, trespassing. There's tr- trespassing laws, <laughs> and this is before the criminal justice bill as well. So that never really, never really existed in Scotland. So it wasn't really something which entered my orbit, so to speak. Yes, blimey, there you go. My God, you—I didn't realize you had such a dance history. Actually, at that stage, so um, <laughs> that's that, the, that was the John Major years, really, wasn't it? Into yes, indeed. Labor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's like I used to read about all this down in London, and you know, you'd see all these documentaries. You know, like from nineteen eighty-eight, all the um, acid house documentaries, the kind of shockumentaries, more like of all these people like gnashing about the. Or would it be in the M25 going, you know, phoning up telephone numbers, ending up in something rave with thousands of people? We just never had any of that in Scotland. So yes. what we ended up doing was, you know, like most of the places where I ran my clubs were established club venues. Or sometimes you just, you know, you'd, you'd kind of go for novelty things. Like the most amazing thing we did was um, we had a ferry boat and we did these things called Ahoy, the Ahoy Raves and the Waves, my where God. from eight o'clock at night till eight o'clock the next morning, we'd basically sail about the maid of the fourth while there was a load of DJs playing music on the bottom decks and, you know, just 200 folk totally out their faces. It was absolutely incredible. Wow, that must have... Um... Did that give you <laughs> sleepless nights that someone might just fall overboard? Well, we had this... Well, basically, we had... <laughs> one of our... We, there was like a kind of no-booze rule. It was going to be soft drinks. And the other thing was like no acid. But then it turned out that, you know, very good friends of ours were like flogging acid and stuff and loads of folk were freaking out and... Oh my god, yeah, that was grisly. Thankfully, thankfully nobody fell overboard. But about yeah. everything else you could imagine happened. Yes, I could imagine. Now they just have blues cruises, don't they, and things like that. So much yeah, yeah, yeah. Or prog prog rock cruises with these old people. So um <laughs> yes, it's all good. So then then as we tra- went through the, the great millennium bug and into the next yes, the two thousands, what happened then with you sort of musically then? Um well I moved down to London. Um, I just felt I could. There wasn't really much, much more I could do in Edinburgh, and I quite fancy a change of scene. Really, I've lived in Edinburgh since I was sixteen. Moved to Edinburgh when I was sixteen. Literally, as soon as I left school, moved straight to Edinburgh. Spent uh, fourteen great, fourteen, not fourteen. 
not far off, not far um, 12, 10, 10, 12 years there, 10, yeah. 12 fantastic years in Edinburgh. Uh, I moved down to London. And lit and literally, when I moved down to London, I just I was staying in Camden. Um, one of my friends was gonna go to prison for a long period of time. So he uh no, for what, what actually happened was I moved into my um there was a guy I knew, Danny Wright, who wrote that book Camden Camden Parasites, moved into his flat. Very unfortunate, very tragically, in fact. Um, he overdosed literally the day I moved into his flat. Nothing I had any involvement in whatsoever, <laughs> obviously, apart, apart from perhaps giving him an advance in his rent money. Um, he died. So then I was, oh, my God, what, what can I do? But his brother, Martin, uh, Martin Lux, who wrote the book Anti-Fascist, he was actually looking at quite a, quite a long prison sentence. He had a really, really nice um, like council flat, and he wanted me to essentially just take that, take the lease out over for however many years it was he was going to be inside mm. so i ended up staying and then basically because he because he was looking at like a long stretch he then went to africa for about 12 months or something so i had his flat to myself then anyway which was brilliant i was working in like 333 a bar in hoxton just at the the very sort of cusp when hoxton went mm. became everything it was so that was a very exciting time in itself um and just kind of going out every night and just having a whale of a time in East End of London. It was absolutely brilliant. But also, not long after I'd been down in London, I was just, just kind of hanging about Camden and playing pool with folk. That's how I got to know a lot of, a lot of people. So obviously that was at the pretty much the tail end of the Britpop scene. But, you know, a lot of the folk who were in bands were still hanging about Camden, obviously. Yes. So I became friends with a lot of them. Um, I ended up getting a job working for the management company of the band Suede. Um, Interceptor Music Management, who were managing Suede, I think it was Sleeper, Echo Belly, Powder, uh, Free Heat, a few other bands. G um, ben from Jesus and Mary Chain worked there. Yeah. David Barnett, who was Suede's biographer, who was in The Boyfriends. And also then subsequently ended up a flatmate of mine, played for Quango and played for Part One. Mm -hmm. um, he was working for them as well. So as you can imagine, that was uh, that was again quite a, quite an exciting time. Mm. And there was a band, Portuguese band. They were wanting to sign the management company, who because their drummer had just left or something, he just went to Portugal. And because they knew I used to play drums, and members of the band knew bands I'd been in the eighties, like Poloi, Political Asylum, Apostles, etc. They asked me if I fancied drumming again. I haven't played drums for like twelve years, and I think we had one practice, and then our next rehearsal. And then our first gig was at um, a place, San Moritz, which was, oh, my God, what's the name of the guy? Absolutely. Guys, guys is rocking blues. Right. San Moritz. That was our first gig. And then we played two other gigs. Management company took us on. Our, like, sixth gig was at Reading Festival, you know? And then everything just, you know, we were, we were on the cover of all the kind of music weeklies, you know, and all the kind of fashion press and everything like that. Um, we did a Japanese tour, American tour. Um, Steve Lamack put out one of our singles, I think. Yeah, what was his, what was his label called? Mot, I can't remember what his label was called. But he did one of our things. Yes. He played, played, played a lot of these gigs. So that all kind of snowballed. <clears throat> and then, um, you know, it, the band didn't really end up being quite what I really, what I really felt much interest in being in a band like. Um, so I left them. Didn't really do anything for a while. And then uh, a few years later, um, ended up getting a band together called Quango with a few kind of like drinking pals from Camden. 
We did one single, which was like a kind of rough trade single of the week. Did did pretty well. Um, and then join, and then part one, you know, then sort of uh, part one reformed. And obviously, I used to write to them in the early eighties. I was a big part one fan in the early eighties. Right, right to, to Mark, and um, and then they they reformed. So I ended up drumming for them. And uh, yeah, the records got re-released on all the Madman and Sacred Bones records. Did an American tour with them. Lots of sort of European gigs. Great. Blimey, that is very exciting. And then your photography career as well. Did you also get him? So was this kind of, did this happen afterwards? After yes, that, that was uh, 2016. Uh, part one basically split up about, yeah, about, 2000, about 2016. 2015, 2016, part one split up. Yeah. And then, see, I'd never actually, I'd never had any training in photography. I still... I'm a real kind of like, you know, total Luddite when it comes to photography. I don't know anything about SLRs or what have you. All I really know is how to like get in the middle of the action, point a camera and just click, click, click. Yeah. Um, so, but basically I've been posting all these photographs. I'm spending a lot of time in Japan then. I pretty much spent six, about six years in Japan, in Tokyo. I've been posting up all these photographs of Tokyo punks because by total not a coincidence, I was walking on the street one day and I met that band GBH. Oh, we yes. chatted to them, and they were like, oh, if you fancy coming on to a gig tonight, I'll stick you in the guest list. And I was like, I sure. Um, so I went along to this gig in, in Shinjuku, and I ended up meeting all these Tokyo punks who are just like the most incredibly friendly and kind of welcoming and just kind of amazing bunch of people. So I ended up, like, whenever I'd be in Japan, I'd spend a lot of time with them. And then I, I, I'd i be constantly documenting everything I'd seen in the, in the punk clubs and all the bands yeah. I'd seen. And I was posting out all the photos on social media. And an old friend of mine from Edinburgh, um, Juan Leal, um, suggested, you know, he, his brother had a very a very well-known art gallery, the Red Gallery in Shoreditch. And he suggested, he said, oh, oh have you ever fancied like, doing an exhibition of your photos? It had never occurred to me before. Mm-hmm. He was just like, they were doing this series of sort of subcultural exhibitions. And he was like, well, if you fancy getting, you know, one together of your uh, Tokyo punk photos, we can we can certainly host that. And so literally, I just did like an incredibly frantic and frenetic two weeks, managed to get, you know, I think about 60 photos, down from, down from about 22,000 photographs I had that I'd taken over, over that period. Right. Managed to get, managed to get down to about 80 and also put a book together, which my old pal Nick Bullen of Napalm Death, he wrote the introduction to that too. And and then literally two weeks later, there was a, a month-long exhibition of my photographs in this gallery. And from that, Came exhibitions in America, about Europe, Mexico, Japan, obviously, and it pretty much kind of launched a photography career, <laughs> so which is crazy. Seems I have like zero skill whatsoever, but I think <laughs> I basically I was just lucky enough to, you know, I was kind of like in the right in the right place at the right time, and also like a lot of my photos, like folk, you know, when I've had like the exhibitions, you get all these photography boffins coming up, goes, oh, how did you get that? You know, I was just like literally, I've just got. You know, a camera, I'll just, if there's like, you know, a punk gigs, you know, it's like at the front of punk gigs, everybody pogoing about in a big moth yeah. bit. You know, with a shitty cheap camera, I can just get up the front and get my camera in folks' faces, get my photo in front of the bands for performing. Whereas if you had some expensive SLR and you were having to adjust the um, the lenses and stuff, you might not be able to do, you'd miss that shot. Yes. So, uh, so it's just, yeah, so it's just, just luck. And are there books still available from all um, the- well, I mean, oh, I had a nightmare. But when I was moving flat, the box that I was given by the gallery of my um, Tokyo 
to, the book was called uh, Up Yours Tokyo Punk. Um, got left on the side of the road. We were moving, and I think basically that just got chucked in, in the back of like a dustbin lorry. So I lost about two hundred copies of that. I, I really should. I should actually um, reissue uh, a kind of extended version of it sometime. Yeah, I haven't got, but I haven't got around to that. Um, but I mean, as as you know, recently I had my um, the best before nineteen eighty four book published, which was again, again, literally done and all put together in about a week. Um, just to just to make it in time for the the launch party for the Optimo Optimo Records album. Yes. So when God, I know you've got quite a lot here, haven't you? So you've got you've got a book out, and you also got this compilation, haven't you? So when did you decide to bring out this compilation? When did that sort of got literally about ten years ago? The thing is, I mean, funnily enough, when I started DJing in 1989, there was a, a venue called Shady Ladies in Edinburgh. We did the Wednesday nights. And Keith, um, as in Keith McIver, who goes by the name DJ Twitch, who um, now runs Optimo Records, DJs under the name Optimo Spatio, uh, he was doing the Saturday nights. So I've known him since about 1980. I've actually known him before I even moved to Edinburgh because I'd always see him at gigs. We always both used to be wearing the same Swans T-shirts. Um, so I've known him since the mid-80s. And we were just talking about this one time, saying about, oh, it'd be great to do a narco-punk album. He approached me because he knew that I knew a lot of people in the bands. Yes. So we thought, yeah, we'll go for that. But, I mean, it just ended up such a, you know, such an incredible... I mean, during that time, I think he got married twice and I had a kid and I moved to Japan and I moved back and then I moved to Spain and I moved back. And, you know, there was all these different things that happened over that time. Plus, of course, the entire crass, you know, probably problematic enough trying to license individual tracks for an album but then the back catalogue got I think put in the hands of one little independent records so we had to negotiate everything again with them rather than just through Penny and G and the individual artists who'd released tracks on Crass Records so it was an incredibly protracted process but um, you know we got there in the end and and again it's, it's a fantastic product absolutely amazing, incredible Yes, absolutely. So, God, that was 10 years' work getting this. Yeah, course. literally literally 10 years' work. I mean, the amount of like hours that must have gone into it, you know, message, you know, emailing bands, um, you know, writing and redraft, you know, because originally, originally it was meant to have been, I think, a triple album. And the first, the first couple of sides were essentially meant to have been the progenitors to anarcho punk, um, which we regarded as those. Sort of fairly politicized free festival type bands like um who could you say? Uh Pink Fairies, Third World War, to an extent, Gong, Here and Now, The Deviants, Twink, stuff like that. But very unfortunately, um, it seemed none of them really seemed to be particularly enthused by the project. So we never really got anywhere with any of those acts. The exception to that rule, and in my opinion, in my opinion, the most uh, integral to that whole transition was um, alternative TV. I mean, Mark, Mark Perry has been a mate for a long time. And so it was an absolute joy that he was up for it. But, you know, ATV, I'd say, are particularly significant because not only did they, were they a punk band who then did the free festival, did the free tour with Here and Now. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you see, if on the cover of that Here and Now ATV um, joint album, there's like Mark of the Mob is in the is in the photo of the crowd on the very front cover, you know, and the mob were inspired by that tour to, you know, take things further with their music. And, you know, it's, it's a wonderful continuum through that 
you know, old guard and that kind of like hippie pre-festival scene to the anarcho-punk scene that there was. So what, how would you, if someone said to you, what is anarcho-punk, how, how would you describe it? And what makes an anarcho-punk band? I'd say musically, um, musically, it should, it, and this is just me, this is obviously all, all my opinion. I'd say integral to it are the politics. I'd say that the politics are to a great extent much more important than the music. The music is essentially just a medium, medium to the message. So without um, political lyrics, it's not really, it's not really anarcho-punk. You know, by definition, it should be espousing and extolling um, anarchist principles. Mm -hmm. Although technically, you could argue the crafts never really did that. So that, you know, that that's something which which is like <laughs> which would be an endless debate. But I'd say uh, it would have to be political, and also I'd say uh, on a purely musical level. If you know, it should. I mean, to me, like when I think when I think of an acupunk, if, if people have to say like you know, quintessential acupunk. Um, I mean, Crash to a great extent, as I'm sure, you know, with yourself being familiar with prog. I mean, there's a lot more sort of prog elements to Crash than there really are punk elements, both visually and kind of sonically yes. to a great extent. But um, when I think, I, I mean, the, the quintessential narco bands to me are, are a lot of bands who never really recorded any vinyl. You know, like, um, you know, Assassins of Hope, Terminal Disaster, Flack. Um, they were basically all the bands who were centred around the, the Wapping Anarchy Centre and later the Central Iberico. Yes. And these were also uh, invariably musicians who were picking up their instruments for the very, very first time, which is why the music sounds very kind of rudimentary. But also that's because it's not, you know, there's none of the influences of other music genres like you know, from from the mid '80s on, obviously punk became heavily influenced by heavy metal, or rather thrash metal. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's some. You know, if you were to characterize the punk sound of today, it actually sounds much, much more like thrash metal than it does punk. You know, say so, you know if you think of like say if you think of like say the Live at the Roxy album. Mm -hmm. as being about as good as you're going to get a sort of overview of what 1977 punk sounded like. There's not really any punk bands that sound like that today. Most of the punk bands now sound like, you know, a poor man's Slayer or Metallica or something like that with kind of daft, growled vocals. Yes, this is true. This is true. So when you were putting it together, people like you've got Honey Bane and also Annie Anxiety. Yeah. Did you, did you feel... That was important for various reasons. Did you think that was really important to get people, those two, in in on the compilation? Well, most certainly. I mean, any anxiety we didn't. Any anxiety. I think um, it was one that Lindy did the negotiations with her. Um, yeah, I think I think they essentially facilitated Annie, um, Honey Bane being on the album. But any anxiety, I mean, any anxiety, if you ever met any anxiety, I mean, any anxiety is just like such an absolute angel. She's just like the sweetest person you could ever meet. I remember thinking that when I met her in like 1982, 1983, and thinking that again when I just met her um, when she was supporting the Swans at the Roundhouse a few years ago. So she was somebody you could literally just message her on Facebook. Oh, by the way, what's your email? I want to send you this proposal for this track. Got a big, oh, you know, she'd love to do it. We're right. happy for all the proceeds to go towards in peace camp, asking us what tracks we wanted to use. And I mean, the thing is, people, I mean, okay, the Honey Honey Bane Girl on the Run, I think is actually one of the best tracks that was ever released on Crash Records. It's absolutely fantastic. 
but it's still like essentially crass backing someone on vocals. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the things like Annie Anxiety and Andy T and a lot of the more kind of avant-garde and, you know, avant-garde sound collage, kind of proto-industrial sort of music concrete type stuff that Crash Records released, I think is every bit as important, if if not personally, I'd say more important than your sort of conflicts and your dirts and the more generic and your MDCs and your more kind of like generic punk thrash type sound. Because as I, I was actually just writing about that today, it's like, you know, if you would say the bullshit detector is the greatest testament ever pressed on vinyl to the ethos that literally anybody can make inverted commas music mm-hmm. and then have their voice heard on a record. People like Andy T and Annie Anxiety, their record showed that you didn't even have to pick up an instrument to do this. You could literally, in Andy T's case, be twiddling about with an old radio or hitting on a, just hitting on a drum or bashing away in a sort of knackered old out-of-tune acoustic guitar. You know, no, it, it totally broke down that entire idea that you had oh. to be not only, a, not only a good musician to be able to make worthy music, but a musician per se by anybody's understanding of the term. And I just think that's that's wonderful. And I just think, you know, if an punk represents anything, it's the it it's you know its greatest legacy should be the idea that it empowered people to think that they really just could do it. Yes, absolutely. And having the shend and the cravat is always yeah, a, yeah. a classic because um we love the shend, don't we? Yes. So that's what he is because he he's got you know he's got that dada quality and you know we all we totally all, yeah 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 exactly exactly yes and then you know bands like Chumbawamba who obviously had such a massive impact on that Leeds punk squatting scene yeah, which again yeah. you know is quite it's quite interesting it's just but what I found you know especially doing so much of this kind of eighty show is that I think. It's been quite recently, you know, in the last five years, there's been much more interest in a lot of the layers of the 80s. Initially, it was kind of a very simple narrative of, you know, like it was. Yes. Yeah. Was it Dylan Jones? He'd always do about the Blitz kids and he'd do about Spandau Ballet and then it was Live Aid and that was, you know, Trevor Hall. Yes, yes, yes. You know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and that was the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you dig down a bit and then there's these kind of interesting layers. So it's, you know, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's only like really in recent years that there's been like so you know the the attention is that um I was going to say a club but it wasn't really a club it was more a phenomenon than a club but the, um you know the back caves have been receiving oh yes you know and and rightfully so obviously with um Johnny's book and the and the album and all that kind of thing but yeah I mean I don't really recall that receiving the recognition and the coverage in previous no. years than it has now well it's interesting because there's a band from eighty. 80- no, 1979, Rima Rima, who oh yeah, yeah, who only lasted eight eight months and did one EP, and there was a film that came out. I know, I know, incredible. I actually designed um, graphics for them. Amazing. It was... Or um, what's it called? In, in enter out in. I can't even remember now. No, but, but um, it... amazing band. I mean, such an incredible band. And of course, then there's you know, which uh, something I only discovered in recent years was that Gary was, of course, in Renegade Soundwave as well. Yes. You know, and Dorothy was, um, you know, she obviously played for sort of myriad bands, including Psychic TV. And, you know, it's an incredible, it's like crossing the, it's almost like, you know, say a band like Rima Rima. I didn't add it, obviously, with Marco. And, you know, so you're also crossing the dots to like, you know, decades forward of bands that you were really, really into, whether it was Psychic TV, whether it was Renegade Soundwave. Exactly. Yes, it's amazing. I know. Probably a robbery was one of our favorites, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact the Phantom, if I'm teaching, I mean, the Phantom's still one track that's going to have folk banging off the walls. 
Yes, absolutely. And Kathy Unsworth has also done a book on golf mm. as well, which yeah. I think is... Yes, it, yes, yes, indeed, yeah. And I, I did an interview with her and I said, well, you know, at the time, golf seemed a little bit kind of comical and a bit silly. But now, you know, I, I realise there's a lot more depth to it than I gave it credit for. But I I, I dismissed golf. No, I mean, so, so did I. So did I. It's kind of like... But again, you know, it's like all of the bands are now... Yeah, I mean, when golf became like a genre term, you know, it, it just seemed very, very cheesy. But all of the bands which were regarded as the, um, you know, the seminal uh, original goth band, like Bauhaus, when they first came about, I mean, everybody thought they were brilliant, and they were brilliant. You know, those those first few records are just like stunning records. I mean, I always I always took them more to be kind of like in the tradition of like a kind of Bowie type band, mm. you know, like that's how I'd always kind of seen Bauhaus, and and then a few years later, you, you hear, you know, they're getting pigeonholed along bands like. You know, dance or not dance society, but some you know some fairly kind of bad bands, and then it's um, yeah. So, it, but but again, that that's one of the whole things about you know um, subcultures and stuff, the way that they ebb and flow until they become codified. Yes, and then then and then sort of three decades later, we can go. Oh, that's quite good actually. So um, yeah, it's well interesting enough. I did an interview with the the people who have started this uh, the Las Vegas punk mutant punk rock oh, movement. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, and again it was interesting timing, but you know, they're they're sort of they've done really well. And I mean it's only yeah. just opened in the last two months. But again it'll be an interesting project. But yeah, I was actually know. I was actually thinking of um sending there some stuff. Because that's another thing. It's like everybody's you know in the same way as when there was that London year of the punk stuff, everybody's like denouncing and saying all oh, punk shouldn't be in museums and stuff. But my personal opinion is you know, museums should reflect the people who are living in those societies, who are living in those cities. I mean, why the fuck should, you know, a museum just be like Elgin Marbles and, um, you know, the, the sort of Queen's... I think it's brilliant that basically you've literally got, the, you know, in the um, London Museum, you've got the Queen's carriage and you've got like a display, which is, you know, actually a crass T-shirt literally just around the corner. And I think it's various Pistols records and a few fanzines and... Yes. Like I think that's fantastic. You know, it's, I think you know if if, mu if museums are anything, they should accurately um, record and reflect a culture for people to see in years to come. Yes, rather than stuff that we're stolen from other countries. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which is, I mean, you know, so I, I don't get all this people like slagging off the, you know, that year of the punk thing. Well, not year of the, I can't remember. Yeah, it was called year of the punk or whatever, and uh, London City of Punk or whatever, and um, the, you know, this Las Vegas museum. You know, I'm sure I'm sure that has like some cheesy stuff but so um, what you know well the lost I, mean, I, mean, that, that, I mean that cheesy stuff could well be the sort of stuff that some like 10 year old kid is gonna you know it's if it's got green day or stuff like that you know so that, that might mean like ever that might mean the same to some 10 year old kid to say crass meant to me when i was 10 years old so yes who are, we, who are we to kind of slag and judge that off that's just like bitter old madness which i think is like a terrible terrible i mean a terrible effect on punk you know sort of gatekeeping crap really Yes, it is. It's 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 uh, it's unnecessary. It's an unnecessary conversation in a world that's got enough problems. And also, I the interviews that I've done with like the guys from from that punk bowling, and also oh, there's the punk bowling festival, and then there's the museum. I mean, they're really really serious about it. They're not just thinking it's just a bit of a you know. They really yeah, yeah. have got real integrity about what they're doing. Yeah, it's not just yeah. a a flippant we're going to try and make money but you know they're doing these amazing tours with these amazing musicians going around you know doing their business yeah. and, and, uh, and i'm yeah. sure you know everybody will probably moan about the price but if you were to actually think how much gigs cost these days and how many bands you're actually seeing for the ticket price of these events it's probably incredibly good value yes there you go you know as i always say when folk are slagging off rebellion it's not you know maybe i wouldn't want to go along and see all those bands but um 
for the people who do it, you know, it's brilliant. It's brilliant value when you think of how many acts you can actually see. Well, I think it's fantastic when, you know, I, I know mates of mine who come over from America every year and like, you know, they take their kids there who are like 14 or something and are getting into punk and they're seeing, you know, they could be seeing AOA or they could be seeing, you know, ATV or they could be seeing, you know, Hagar the Womb or something. Like that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yes. And, and people only slag it off if they've never organised something. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because <laughs> that's a yeah. It's like, how many events have you organised, mate? <laughs> oh yeah, I know. And another thing is, like, everybody's, oh, I thought like a DIY event. I'm just thinking the number of DIY events I have played, where basically I've just been totally shafted by the promoters, and you try and pull them up about it. And it's like, whoa, you're not like supporting the scene if you like ask for bread, you know? And then and then you play something like Rebellion, you get paid, and those and the money you get paid from something like Rebellion actually allows you. To play like benefit gigs and gigs you're not going to make any money you know good sort of like underground diy type events yes it's, absolutely yeah. i know i know and sometimes you do have to pay your heating bills so there you go That's indeed, so did you say you've also done a book as well god yes um yeah but basically it came out the same day as the on the launch party for the optimal album it's called best before 1984 and it's i just i mean as i said originally it was going to be I was just going to literally produce like a little fanzine type thing, like 20 pages. And I was scanning images. So I just thought, I'm just going to try and scan what I think are perhaps the most intellectually, or not intellectually, ideologically sort of engaging um, pages from punk fanzines, some of the more visually vibrant and kind of dynamic uh, images from punk. Because, I mean, obviously some of those, I mean, I have abs- I just love that sort of cut and paste, that really kind of Sam is that cut and paste, yes. um, anarcho-punk ma- monochromatic, very artless to a great extent um look well, of, of of so much of the, the the visual aspect and i always thought, thought the visual aspect was every bit as important as the, as the music as well in in many many ways more so perhaps i think it's, yeah. it's legacy is is more um it's, it's a greater legacy but yeah so i just so i ended up i just couldn't stop scanning images so i just ended up with with about 120 really, really brilliant pages from fanzines, really brilliant flyers that bands have produced, a few political things, you know, like I've got a few early class war issues or some covers that some people might not have seen, a few of the leaflets that they gave out at um, various events in the very early stages of the organisation, gig posters, uh, stickers, just, you know, just a, a a very visual representation of the years in which I think the the movement was at its most kind of vibrant and um, most vibrant and diverse. But does that go back to the Barney Bubbles years? Is he would he be one of those people, or would it be more because Adam Ant was into you know early graphics, wasn't he? So- oh, totally, totally. Um, oh, what's his name? What's the um, the kind of SM um, illustrator who Adam Ant used a lot of their, you know, all the all those early Adam Ant. You know the sort of dominatrix yes. type imagery he used to use. I can't. Not totally Maplethorpe. No, 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 not Robert Maplethorpe. It's an illustrator, and I totally forget his name. I was actually looking at his stuff only the other night. But it'll, it'll come back to me if I don't think about it. But yes. yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean Barney Bubbles. I mean, just incredible graphic artist. I mean, there's yeah. so many. I mean, I, he's he's like a particular favorite of mine. And then, you know, twenty years later, I mean, I I absolutely adore like the early uh, Neville Brody stuff when he was doing stuff. You know, the, his early work with Cabaret Voltaire, a certain ratio, and and that kind of stuff. And then you know, even all the graphics, say Peter Christopherson did for Throbbing Gristle. I mean, that's fantastic graphics. And then 
you've got the stuff which I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm very, very obsessive about graphics. Yes, well, absolutely. Stuff, well, it's so. interesting because you had that um, company called, is it Hypnosis from the yes, uh, late, yeah. late 60s? And, uh, and you know, they're obviously old hippie types. And then they got, was it the guy from Throbbing Gristle? Was yeah, yeah, of... Peter, he was, um, he, he worked for them. Yeah. And so. I actually got, they produced a big coffee, the big, a big color coffee table book of Hypnosis uh, a few years ago, which I got. And it's absolutely incredible. It actually goes through the, the method but the concept behind all of these co covers that you see and the actual method of how they took them, which is, it's genuinely incredible in a lot of instances. Everything from, you know, ACDC, Dirty Deeds Done Cheap, um, you know, 10cc covers, um, you know, just all, all these things, which are, which I remember from when I was a kid, as they're the, rec when you go into a record shop, they're always the record covers which are up on the walls. Yes. You know, um, U UFO album covers and, and all, these, you know, all these all these kind of like big rock album covers. And also, you know, when I was at school as well, in the art class, we used to have this book of album covers. Yes, you just, that's true. <laughs> you, just, you just always kind of look through it. And it was really amazing to see just the amount of thought that had gone into a lot of these covers. Yes, because I know. Um, was it last year? This guy, or two years ago, he brought he brought a book out, didn't he? Which was this one on graphic, right? You know, graphic stuff as well. <laughs> you know what? Um, I have to. I have to get a copy of that book. I, thank you very much for reminding. It also came out with an orange cover, didn't it? Then then he bought another one out as well. Ah, right. Okay, I have. Ah, these are these are basically probably the only two punk graphics books I don't actually have. <laughs> but did Literally. you get? You got? Did you get this one? Yes, yes, yes. I was at the launch party for that. Uh, classic. Yes, I know. It's good, isn't it? Really. So. Um, and of yeah. course, I mean, Jamie. You know, Jamie Reed. I mean, another absolutely incredible design. I mean, like his. You know, the influence of Jamie Reed's sort of like cut-up aesthetic, is I actually collect because um, I always thought it'd be a great. So whenever I see Jamie Reed influenced graphics, I always try and like collect them or at least take photographs of them and everything from from Burger King to the. Um, the Japanese electri electrical authority have used images which are just total riffs of the Nevermind the Ballers cover. Yes. That's, that's genuinely incredible. It's like if you see cut out ransom notes, um, yellow, pink, or blue kind of fluorescent inks, you just immediately think punk. It's like there was a hole in Rough Trade Records. I remember going there for a for some speaking event or something, and there was an entire there was like an enormous table of all these punk books, all the covers. Of which, rather kind of like unimaginatively, all seem to have very Jamie Reed influenced um, color schemes or typography. But you know that's just become as much of a byword for punk as having spiky hair or probably today a Mohican yes. and a studded leather jacket. But when you think that's actually graphics, that's incredible. I don't think there's really, or perhaps pop art in the sixties. You could actually probably argue that. Yes, this you could. Yes, this is this is fascinating. But it's interesting because I know there was a couple of books came out recently on fanzines, weren't there? I think the Manchester University Press brought one out, and um, is it Matthew Wall? Matthew Warley, yeah, Warley, good friend of mine, yeah. So yeah. yes, it, and it's because I suppose what I found it was it's like a past of about thirty years where we'd be throwing that stuff in the bin and recycling probably, and yeah. then then you think oh wait a minute that's actually quite interesting and quite valuable and um, you know can we just God tell me about that I mean I've I've still got about four of those plastic packing cases full of fanzines posters flyers and everything the really crazy thing about that is 
when I left home, when I left home when I was 16, no interest in punk at all. I was just into like, you know, electro and hip hop and everything like that. We actually had a, there was a skip. Our next door neighbours had a skip because they were doing renovation in the house. I remember literally throwing bin bags, filling bin bags up with fanzines, letters I'd got from Crass, gig posters, everything like that, and throwing them out my bedroom window into this skip that the neighbours had in their, got in their, you know, next door to our house. Mm. And my mum coming in and saying, oh, you really shouldn't be throwing that stuff out. One day that's all going to be really valuable and that's going to be really sort of historic material. And I didn't give that any thought. I just thought, oh, no, it's just a little punk shy. You know, I'm not interested in that at all. When my mom died in um, 2013, I then found out that she, in her attic, she had kept, she had these trunks and she had kept all these bags of fanzines and posters and flyers that I had actually thrown out into the skip. So that is where my entire kind of archive I mean, it's like, you know, if you if you have to look at my social media from, you know, 2004, I'm not posting up any fanzines for anything because I didn't have any of that stuff. I hadn't, I thought that stuff was all just like lost to the mists of time. Yes. But it was only really when she died that I found these boxes that she had kept of all these fanzines, letters from crass, graphics, even the actual original cut and paste, paste ups of my, the, the issues of my fanzine, you know, absolutely <laughs> incredible. And, you know, again, she was right. She was so right. God, yeah. you must have been absolutely... You must have been speaking. I was, I was just absolutely knocked for six, literally knocked for six. I mean, she was a smart cookie, but I never, I never kind of like, I mean, to have that foresight as well. Just, and even things like, you know, all these like animal rights leaflets that you'd get, that you'd get sent and all the fanzines and stuff. She'd kept all that stuff. Yes. It was literally like nothing she'd really thrown out. And she'd so, gone through, I could kind of tell that she'd gone through it as well. That was the fucking, the craziest thing. So it's, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a really, really amazing archive. Of the years 1980 to um, 1984 or whatever. So did it take in the... And, and, that, and that's essentially what's all in that book I produced. That mm -hmm. is all, that's really a collection of all that stuff. Did it take in the anti-poll tax period as well? Uh, that was later. That was uh, 19... Uh, I was about 1980. That was about 1989. 89 to 91, yeah. I mean, I've still got... I mean, that was another thing I totally forgotten about. Uh, one of the only times I ended up drumming between the early 80s and again when I moved down to London was when I was sharing a flat with Deke of Oi Poloi and they were without a drummer on two occasions. First occasion was when they recorded their first album and were going embarking on their first European tour. So I drummed on that album and did the tour with them. And then uh, we also recorded a single called Fuck the Poll Tax, oh, which nice. has got which has got like there's there's a brilliant video. I hope it's still I hope it's still there because there was um there was like an anti poll tax demo and me and Deke and my mate Ian Rose who sadly died last year and a few other folks we actually got into the council chambers and we were on the news like chucking these filing cabinets out of the out of the window of the Edinburgh City Council Chambers building with all the folks council tax records on them and stuff and there's a bit of that demonstration is on this video and I have no idea who made this video. I asked Deke I said was this because no it's just suddenly appeared on eBay. On not on eBay on um, on YouTube for the mm -hmm. song we did. Um, I think I think it might be called. It's under the name Punkade, and it's uh, it's either Smash the Poltax, which was the A side for Radio Play. Yes. John Peel played that again, and um, the B side was called Fuck the Poltax. It's one of those songs. Essentially the same song, just with you know sweary words in one and the word Smash in the other. Nice. That, they, but, um, yeah, it... but I remember. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got a fair fair bit of stuff from that period. Yeah, because obviously, exactly... you know, obviously Scotland was essentially the testing ground before they tried to introduce that in England. So yes. there was a lot of like community resistance to that in Scotland at the time.
Yes, it's obviously Norwich had the same experience with people breaking into the offices and yeah, yeah, ram- rampaging through the filing cabinets. <laughs> I, mean, so, I don't know, you're from Norwich. So do, you, do you know Matthew? Not really, but he's. Oh, right. ten- but I, tonight, I, see all the time. I, I went out with him last. I was with him last Thursday. We, we well, meet all the time. Amazing yes. guy. Yes. Well, tonight he's got a uh, a book event with Dorothy Max Pryor and Kathy yes, Unsworth yes, yeah. at the Hive. So I thought, oh, that's a nice little gig. So there you go. So yeah, yes. I, I'm still. I, you know, I keep on meet, missing Dorothy's events myself. I mean, she did one the other week with um, what was his name? The uh, drummer in uh, Bar- Barbarossa, something. Oh, he was in Bow Wow Wow, wasn't he? Yes, or... yes. I need the original drummer in Adam and the Ants. Yeah, she did a thing with him the other week. I just, I just keep on because the thing is, because I work late. You know, I work during the day, and then I work. Well, I work in a bizarre. I work in like a gym for, um, from the afternoons until nine o'clock at night, and then sometimes right. I work, and then sometimes I work in a bar after that. Yes. So <laughs> crazy. So, so I, so I end up, so I end up missing so many of these events now. Yes, really bad. But I, but I'm really. Kick, I start. I haven't even got a copy of Dorothy. I haven't even got a copy of Dorothy's book because I want to get one offer to get her to sign it. You know. Yes. Well, there you go. The, the other book that came out um, was Adele Berte. She's got a very good book out called Twisted that she was doing a reading with Thurston Moore. Oh right, night. that was yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, funnily enough, I was talking to I was talking to Tony D yesterday, and he was saying that um, that was on during the day yesterday afternoon. Yes. Trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Talking of, if you get a chance, snuff uh, have got an, an afternoon acoustic gig next week. And when I was in Oipoloi, we played a gig with snuff. They were brilliant. Yes, I did an interview with Duncan last week. That was really nice. So um, he's that the drummer used to. Yeah, he's a drummer yeah, singer. Amazing. Inc- I mean, genuinely incredible. I yes. remember we played at the George Roby with them, and that was they were just phenomenal. Absolutely yes. phenomenal. I just always thought, I wonder if he's ever had a chat with Joseph Porter. You know. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so look, how do you get a copy of both the book and the record? I'm sure, is it, do you have a mail order? Um, um, well, basically, people, if people just want to contact me, that is the that is the easiest way. The record, I don't have anything to do with the record, really. Um, the that, That's best to go to the, the record label for that. Yes. But um, certainly the book, if people just want to contact me direct through Instagram or Facebook, or if you want to give folk my email, that yes. would be the best thing. And then I can just and then I can just And how much and how much that. is the book? Book's twenty-five pounds. Fantastic. That's a bargain, isn't it, really? That's good. Indeed, indeed. Labor off, and it's all like um ecologically non-bleached paper and all uh, that stuff. The the record took ten years. How long did the book take? About five days. Literally from <laughs> when I literally maybe about maybe about a week from when I started. From when I had the idea of doing the book to when it was sent off to the printers, took about a week. And uh, I, th- I think I stayed up maybe two or three nights. I just didn't sleep for two or three nights just to get everything. Done. And even, to, I mean, I think there's genu- there's literally about two typos in the entire in the entire book. And there's a fair bit of text as well. Fantastic. But it's um, so I'm very I'm very very pleased with both. In fact, it's it's wonderful to have some because I mean there's been so many records I'm on and things I've been involved in when at the end of the day they just look shite and it's. It's it's so there's nothing more soul crushing than having to appear in you know you're on tour with a band promoting an album and every time you look at the album cover it just fucking pains you because it's just like a monstrosity but the but this is you know oh, and the apostles album that came out last year as well on Horn of Plenty you know for the first time really I think in my life there have been musical projects that I've been involved in that I'm actually incredibly proud of. <laughs> 
That's good. Yes, you don't want that black um, spinal tap moment looking at the black <laughs> album, do you? <laughs> oh, I haven't watched moments of that, believe me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, look, thank you ever so much for this, Chris. I'm so pleased. My absolute to... pleasure. And thank you so much for having the patience to persevere to get me. Uh, yeah. see, I, I, always thought, I always thought you were going to be doing like a Skype, um, like a visual interview as well that was obviously i totally misinterpreted that but i can always I, i'll send you i can do this and and send you the link and you can always put it on your facebook page and use it and you know well, wherever i but i mean you you do your thing first and yeah. as i said please please send me your um send me your send me your address and i'll get some stuff off you tomorrow oh amazing well yeah that's fantastic okay. very, well, le- very least i can do for all your patience and perseverance and i'd love to see some more of your interviews you've done if they're yes. kind of online and also um, i have to introduce you to matthew orley sometime yeah that's right yes well i mean I, I, that's I was... cra- that's crazy that you're not in contact with because you a you'd get on so well and he's he's a genuinely incredible person with yeah. that encyclopedic knowledge of a lot of things which i'm sure we're both fascinated by <laughs> all these absolutely bizarre and fascinating characters Very that's another thing i would think is really bizarre it's like i mean i was only really involved in the entire narco-punk scene for at the very, very most three years, whereas I was involved in like, you know, the running clubs for, oh, a good sort of 16 years. But it's, you know, I've got more kind of friends and made more contacts and engage more with the, my involvement with, you know, those two or three years spent within an aquapunk than I ever generally do talking about like anything club related, which is why, you know, yours has been like a, a pleasant, a pleasant exception to that rule. But you know, it, it just says something for how much how much must have been kind of invested in that period. Indeed, and that is the end of the interview with Chris Lowe. If you want to find out any more information, I will say that, um, include the link below in the notes. Um, do look on. Uh, I think he's got Instagram, Twitter, and also Facebook as well. So uh, the compilation is titled "Cease and Resist." And this is, uh, it's an 18-track compilation, which is absolutely fantastic. And also has done this amazing book as well, uh, titled Best Before 1984, which is to do with flyers and fanzines from that interesting period of political and cultural history. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy, please. And also, these have all been archived, aren't you, Noki? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. True. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.